Uh, it's really good to see all of you. Um, <clears throat> I think somebody mentioned this last week, but I'm just going to say it again. Um, really happy to have Cole here with us. Cole moved uh, in to live here with us in Irving, and uh, really excited about that. But it is also bittersweet, uh, because now I am the second most handsome man in this church. <laughs> so, but... <laughs> I'm excited to be preaching uh, this morning uh, with y'all again in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20 if you want to go ahead and um, open up there. Um, I am going to attempt to preach through an entire chapter um, in 27, 26 minutes, okay? Uh, so hang in there with me. We're going to skip through some of it and uh, spend a little bit more time in other places, so uh, just bear with me there. Uh, but on the bright side, I'm not going to tell you to give away all your stuff this morning, so... There's that. You can kind of just do one of those. I'm just going to pray uh, one more time that the Lord would just work in us during this time. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I pray uh, just for your help um, during this sermon. Uh, I pray for your help for me and just your help for all of us to be able to receive what you have to say to us through your word today. Pray that you would convict us where we need it, that you would encourage us where we need it, push us where we need it, draw us back where we need it. Um, Holy Spirit, you ultimately know exactly what each person in this room needs to hear. And I pray that you would speak those things uh, to each individual in this place this morning. Again, I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, starting off in verse 1. Um, we are looking at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. <clears throat> I'm not going to read it again because uh, Charles read it earlier. I'm just going to summarize a little bit. Um, but basically in this parable, uh, you have this landowner, and uh, he has this vineyard, and he goes out, and it's harvest time. They're going to get the grapes. And so uh, as they would normally do, they would go and get some day laborers uh, in the city, and they would go get some people to come and work in their fields. Uh, for the day is basically like the, our, their equivalent of going to the Home Depot uh, in Irving. Like if you want some work done, you go there, all right? Uh, you go get yourself some people who know how to do things. And so uh, the guy goes over there, he gets some uh, laborers, and they go out into the vineyard, and he says, I'm going to pay you a denarius, which is a day's wage. And they say, okay, and they go out to work in the field. Well, and he comes back a few hours later, and he said, what are you guys doing sitting around? And they're like, nobody hired us. And so he goes, and he says, hey, go into my field, and I'll pay you what's fair. And so they go, they start working in the field. And then he does this um, a few more times throughout the day. Every few hours he goes back and does the same thing. Um, <clears throat> and so, I don't know if you know this, but the people who are probably left uh, towards the middle and the end of the day, we would assume that they're either lazy um, or they maybe have some kind of like physical, physical disabilities or something like that that would make them, maybe they're a little bit older, um, and so these guys are probably not like the best workers that you'd have in your fields. Um, and so he goes and gets all these guys, and at the end of the day, he tells his guy, uh, he tells his, um, what, is it the foreman? What's the, what's the word you say? The, is that what it is? Jonathan, help me out. I don't know. He tells the guy who gives out the money to give out the money, uh, and he says, start with the guys who start at the end, and then go all the way to the people who were hired first. And so... 
the guy, and he pays them all the same. He pays them a denarius each, a day's wage each. And the guys at the end, you know, they're like, oh, sweet. Everybody's getting paid. Those guys are getting paid a day's wage. He's going to bump up our pay. And uh, he gets to the end, and he pays them all the same. And they get upset. And he goes, can I do whatever I want with my money, or are you envious because I'm generous? It probably took longer for me to explain that than it would have been just to read it. <laughs> <laughs> So we saved some time there. Um, I don't want to camp out too long on this, but I think a couple of important things that you can really take away from this. Um, I think what this is not talking about is that at the end of, you know, our lives, who are, like everybody who followed Jesus, you know, their whole entire life will have the same, you know, heavenly rewards as the people who, you know, followed or like gave their life to Jesus on their deathbed. I don't think that's what this is talking about. Um, Jesus starts out and he just says, this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And really, essentially, I think we can maybe take a little bit too much out of this and miss um, the, the, more, the, the most important part of it, and it's God's nature and the way that he deals with us. And here's the first thing, <clears throat> is that God is always just. There's an emphasis throughout this passage because in the beginning, he says to the first guy, I'm going to pay you a day's wage, and they worked for a day, okay? Totally fair. And then to the next guys that he goes out and hires, he says, I will pay you what is fair, what's just. And then at the end, whenever the guys are all peeved because they all got paid the same and they feel like that's not fair, he says to them, I am not being unfair to you. I think the first thing to take away from this parable is that God is always fair. God is always just. And this is something that you really have to hold on to because there are times in life where it feels like God is not fair, where God is unjust. And one of the biggest critiques of God, probably spoken throughout the time that people have been on this earth, is probably that God is unfair. People feel that things have happened in their life in such a way, or they'll look at the things that have not happened for them in their life in such a way and look at the lives of other people and say, that's not fair. God is not fair. God is not just. I'm here to tell you, God is always just. He's always fair. He never withholds things from people that they deserve, and he never gives anything that was not deserved. Now, you got to be careful to look into our circumstances and look into the things that happen to us and think, oh, well, God did this to me, or uh, and attribute things to God that may not have been things that he's putting into your life. You know, you go back and you look into the Bible, and uh, I, I love the way that somebody said this. Is uh, back They said, uh, this is some old preacher talking, but he said, you know, back whenever I was a kid, it was the devil who made people sick and God who, heal, who, who healed people. And he said, now, these days, we've almost made a theology where God is the one who makes people sick and the devil is the one who heals people. Be careful when something bad happens in your life and you immediately jump to, God, why did you do this? God may not be the one doing this. And we're going to get into this a little bit later uh, whenever we talk about Jesus healing these blind men. But be careful whenever you're tempted to call God unjust. He is always fair. He's always good. He's always just. And there are things that happen in our lives that we have to wrestle with, but that's something that we always have to remember is that God is always just. And he's always, and I should say it this way, he's always at least just. Because the second thing you get out of this parable, and he says it of himself, he said, are you upset because I'm generous? 
The Greek actually just says, like, because I'm good. He said, is your eye evil because I am good? God is always at least just, but most of the time, even more than that, he's generous. He's not just giving the things that we deserve and withholding the things that we don't deserve, but he's actually giving things that we don't deserve. He's giving grace. He's giving gifts. And other times, he's giving mercy. He's withholding the things, the bad things that we do deserve. This is Jesus in a nutshell, the gift that we didn't deserve. And because of his death, we get to miss out on a death that we did deserve. He took it for us. And so God is always just, at least, and more often than not, he's just generous. And this is something that we've got to remember, especially as we're moving into these next, uh, these next couple stories in Matthew 20. So if you look with me on uh, verse 17, we're actually going to start reading the Bible now. It says in verse 17, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you remember this, but this is not the first time that Jesus has given this news to his disciples. This is the third time. It's going to be the final time that Jesus is warning them that he's going to die and be raised to life. Now, the first couple of times, remember the first time, Peter says, absolutely not. No way. And that's when Jesus calls him Satan and tells him to get behind him, and it's really ugly. And so the second time Jesus tells him, nobody tells him no per se, but it says that they were filled with grief. And now we're here on this third time, and we don't get any response from the disciples whatsoever. Now, you can take what you want uh, that to mean. Uh, I'm not totally sure exactly what we're supposed to get from that. But I will say, in the least, it seems like they're still not quite getting it. It's possible that Jesus just said this, and they just kind of looked at him at this point. And I think it's safe to say that the, at this point, the disciples still do not understand Jesus and his kingdom and this really specific really important key part of being in the kingdom and is that in God's kingdom, suffering is just part of following Jesus. Jesus, the main guy, the king himself, is going to suffer the worst out of anyone who will come after him. Showing us that this is what, this is part of it. Suffering, persecution, all of that comes with following Jesus. You remember what he said? He said that no servant is greater than his master. If they kill the master, they're going to do the same to you. And the disciples just haven't quite got on board with this yet, it seems. And that becomes pretty obvious whenever you move into this very next part. Okay, so he's with his disciples, and this is a little strange. One of their moms show up, okay, and she wants to ask Jesus a favor. And she comes to him, and this is what, they, what she says. In verse 20, it says, The mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, and asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Is that all? <laughs> Would you also like a money tree or like three wishes or something? Like, that's a big ask. 
But I don't think we should get stuck. I don't think we should think that this is actually coming from her mom, their, their mom, okay? I don't think that they're, she's just like, oh, you know, I just want the best for my two little men, you know, just to sit at the left and the right hand of the sovereign Lord for all of eternity. Because whenever he goes back and he answers, he says in verse 22, he says, now, uh, in Greek, it's the second plural. It's, it's, it's you, it's you guys. Uh, the proper English, I'm going to read it in the proper English. It says, y'all don't know what y'all are asking. Can y'all drink the cup I'm going to drink? And so, if you can picture it, like, their mom, Mama Zebedee, is sitting right here, and the guys are sitting right here, and Jesus is talking, and she says, can you let my son sit next to you, um, you know, in the kingdom? And he goes, y'all don't know what you're asking, essentially, okay? He says, can y'all drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And I, I just think it's really, like, I think it's kind of funny that they go and ask their mom, because, you know, they, Jesus had told them earlier, if you remember from my sermon last week, you probably don't, it's fine, but Jesus had just told them, he said, you 12 are going to sit next to me, and you're going to be on 12 thrones next to my throne, and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, as if that wasn't enough, I imagine James and John getting together, and they're like, James is like, hey, John, come here. Like, I mean, 12 thrones, Jesus is in the middle, that means there's going to be one on the left, one on the right. He's just like, I'll go get mom. It seems a little silly uh, to me, but this is what they wanted. And here is the thing, is that this is showing what these guys still think it's all about. And I imagine, given the way that they interpreted the kingdom already and all this time, they probably think this was probably like five or six weeks from now. They're like trying to get ready. They're trying to think about how they're going to decorate their throne. And Jesus turns around and he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And in the Bible, a lot of times the cup is referring to the cup of God's wrath, intense suffering. These guys just don't get it yet. And the reason that he says this is because, and notice that Jesus doesn't just say no. He's not like, no, you can't. He says, well, it's going to be related to whether or not you can drink the cup that I am going to drink, which is suffering. And so he goes on, and he tells them how you ascend, how you climb the ladder in the kingdom. If you want to be the highest, if you want to sit next to Jesus, so to speak, in the kingdom, this is how you get there. He said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at, the, at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. In verse 24. It says, when the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your slave, and whoever wants to be first must be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, if you want to go up in this kingdom, you've got to go down. The way to climb the ladder to greatness in this kingdom is to descend it here on earth. 
You know, Jesus was going to show this in just a few days whenever he was going to go to these same disciples and he was going to wrap a towel around his waist and he was going to go and take the filthiest, dirtiest, lowliest of jobs and wash their feet. The way up in the kingdom is down and the way down is up. Jesus said those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It's funny because I think that we've forgotten this a little bit. Have you ever, it's funny whenever I'll go and talk to somebody, I'll introduce myself, and you know, like the first thing guys will talk about is, I'm going, well, what do you do? Um, and whenever I'll tell them, you know, um, I'm a minister, people go, oh. And that's like a good thing to most people. Like, it's like, oh, like, wow, that's, that's impressive. Um, and that's like kind of a thing, you know, in church, like ministers are kind of the guy. Uh, and even in politics, you know, like in other, usually it's like other, in like Europe, you know, like the, there's the minister of this, there's the minister of that. I can't think of a single political thing, by the way, uh, thing that, those things that those guys do. Uh, you know, I know one, the prime minister, right? He's like the head honcho. But minister, the word, means slave. The word means servant. That's originally what it is. And we've turned it into like, oh, he's the minister. Like, or this guy's the prime minister. And we've missed it. Jesus said, the one who's supposed to be greatest among you should be the one who's getting the lowest. The one who's doing the things that nobody else wants to do. The one who's getting around and helping the people that nobody wants to be around. Because following Jesus is, it means the road of suffering and it means a path of service. It's not about becoming the most important person in the room. It's not about becoming respected. Jesus said it's about getting as low as you can go. And he said, once you've done that, you have become the greatest in the kingdom. You're the greatest in Jesus' eyes. This is so important to remember what we've signed up for. We've not just signed up for coming to church and trying to be nicer people. We're coming here to lay down our lives is basically what Jesus is asking for. We're here to take up a cross. We're here to do some not fun things. That's what Jesus said is the way to being the greatest of the kingdom. Okay, now I want to spend the last few minutes talking about something that seems a little unrelated, but we're going to tie it all back together here at the end. Uh, it's a blind guy story, okay? Um, there's a lot of blind guy stories in the Bible. This one's probably my favorite, okay? Uh, so go ahead and pick up in verse 29 with me. I'm just going to read through the whole thing real quick. It says, As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus stopped and called them, said, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered. We want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. 
Before I go any further, I want to point out um, it's a really important verse in the Bible. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I say that because it's tempting to look at some stories, and it, they're nice, but it looks like, like, don't really know what that has to do with me. This is like this one, like, oh, that was, that was really sweet of Jesus. Jesus is really nice to heal that guy. Let me tell you, it's more than just that. There is a lesson to be learned in here for us, maybe a few, okay? So with that being said, I think the first one, one of my favorite things about this passage, again, uh, it's kind of funny, Jesus stops and he goes over to these blind guys, blind guys, and says, what do you want me to do for you? We want a pony. You know, we want to receive our sight. What kind of question is that? Why uh, these, The miracle worker walks up to the blind man and says, what do you want? Well, obviously, wouldn't they want to receive their sight? Why is Jesus asking this question? But the better question is probably like, why, why does God ask any questions? Right? Aren't they all kind of rhetorical? He knows the answer usually, or always, I should say. I would propose that I don't really know why God asks these questions. I don't know why Jesus goes up and says, what do you want? But he does. He asks us to ask him. Over and over again, you go and you see through the New Testament, Jesus says this so many times. He says, ask me and you will receive. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Seek and you will find. For some reason, the, Lord's want, the Lord wants us asking. And I think one of the best places, uh, one of the best things we can learn about this is in James chapter 4. Jesus is talking to a church, and he is talking to people who apparently are lacking something that they want. He says to them, you know, what's causing fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? He said, you desire, but you do not have. And what does he say to fix that? He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. You do not have because you do not ask God. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, is there anything I do not have because I do not ask God? God is sovereign and he knows all things. He knows all desires, and he can do whatever he wants. And so sometimes we think what that means is that everything in our life is just how God wants it right now. That might be a little bit of a misunderstanding, an oversimplification of God's sovereignty. Because God is, at, is telling us to ask, is there something in our life that we do not have? Is it maybe because we haven't asked God? Maybe we've striven after it on our own power. Maybe we've gone after it, done everything that we can to get it, but maybe we're missing out on it because we haven't asked the Lord. And you see these guys, and Jesus says, what do you want? And they tell him, they say, we want our sight. And he gives it. Now this brings up all kinds of weeds in our theology. 
Because the first thing that every person in this room thinks is, well, what about that time? What about that time that I prayed for that and it didn't happen? I asked God, it didn't happen. I actually asked God a lot and it didn't happen. Well, I don't know the answer in all of those, but I do know that there are a few things that can be done about that. One of my favorite parts, if you keep on reading in James uh, 4 and you get into verse 2, he does give one reason that maybe we didn't get what we wanted. Sorry, I just flipped away from it. Now I've got to go back. He goes on the very next verse. He says, whenever you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You know what's funny is Jesus right here, whenever he goes up to the blind man, he says, what do you want me to do for you? You notice that he said the exact same thing to the Mama Zebedee? He said, what do, you, what do you want? And I think right there we get a perfect example of what it looks like to ask for something with selfish motives. Could there be anything more probably selfish then, hey, you guys are going to sit on 12 thrones with me for all of eternity and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And they go, we want the two best spots of those. Ego. Selfish pride. And I think this is one of the only places, somebody, if you figure it out and you can, you can come up, you have permission to come correct me afterwards if you want. Uh, but I think this is one of the only places that I can think of where somebody comes up and asks Jesus for something and he doesn't give it to them. And I would say it's probably because of their wrong motives, their selfish desires. And this is super important to understand because you guys live, and I live, in American Christianity. And there is a sickness that mostly exists here in American Christianity that says Jesus wants to make all of you millionaires. Jesus wants you to have that car. Jesus wants you to have that house. Jesus wants you to have that vacation. He wants to make your business thrive. Jesus is not a genie in the bottle. Jesus did not come to make your life more comfortable if you did not learn that from the first couple of stories that we looked at today. Jesus is coming to bring his kingdom and when we're asking, we have to always bring our ask up to that standard and say, am I asking for me or am I asking for the kingdom? Am I asking for something that aligns with what Jesus wants or am I just looking for my own selfish motives? I want to look at one more thing here. Um, one thing you'll notice about these guys is that Jesus is walking by in the crowd and they hear that Jesus is coming by and they shout, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the guys around them, they go, shh, quiet. And what do they do? They go, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They shout louder. They shout again. And I would propose, or let me not propose, let me just ask a question. What do you think would have happened if they said, shh, 
And they went, oh, okay, sorry. What would have happened to them? Would they have regained their sight? Something worth thinking about. And I'm wondering if some of us might be in the same boat. Like, yeah, I asked. Well, did you ask again? What about, did your dignity get in the way? They didn't care what those people thought. They were persistent. They shouted again. They were undignified. They shouted louder. They didn't care what people thought. They just knew they needed Jesus. So they just kept shouting. And I bet if they shushed him again, they would have shouted again. And this is a thing, is that Jesus is answering the prayers of desperate people. A lot of times, maybe he's not, we're not seeing answers to our prayers because maybe we don't care as much as we think we do. We prayed for 45 seconds and we're like, well, nothing happened. Must be the Lord's will. Maybe you and me need to press in a little bit more. Maybe we need to shout a little louder. I want to share a story with y'all just to close. <clears throat> it says, uh, the only person Monica loved more than her son was her God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When her son was a baby, she used to sing hymns to him while she was breastfeeding him. She dedicated him to the Lord and prayed he would be a blessing to the kingdom of God. Monica's faith and love were well known throughout the Christian community in her city. And when her son grew up, her brilliant, his brilliance and uh, her, his brilliance, sorry, was equally well known. But so was his immorality and hostility toward God. The young man became a, a rhetoric professor. He had given himself over to the full-time occupation of drunkenness, sexual immorality, and turning people away from the one true God with his philosophical speculations. Even the most highly trained Christian intellectuals could make no headway with Monica's son. Monica had come close to despair several times, but she refused to give up. She continued to labor in prayer for the salvation of her son. When her son was 19 years old, Monica had a dream, and in the dream, she and her son were walking together hand in hand in heaven. She knew God was telling her through the dream that he would save her immoral son, and the dream encouraged her to intensify her prayers. A year went by, then another and another. Instead of her son growing closer to God, he seemed to be growing further away. He had gotten more intelligent, more arrogant, and more committed to evil than ever before. A famous, respected, and wise church leader visited Monica's city to conduct some religious services there. Because Monica was so highly thought of among the Christians in her city, it was not difficult for her to obtain a private meeting with him. She told him of her prayers for her son and that his condition had actually worsened. She implored him to speak with her son, but he refused. He knew any attempt on his part to persuade Monica's son to repent would only serve to harden his heart. How will my son ever be saved, Monica sobbed. The wise old man looked down on Monica's tear-stained face with affection. Woman, he said, it is impossible for the son of those tears to perish. Monica was encouraged by those words in the same way she had been encouraged by her dream years earlier. With renewed zeal, she continued to do the only thing she could do. She prayed. Nine years after Monica's dream, her son was sitting in a garden, still an unbeliever, when he heard an audible voice speak the words, Take it and read. Take it and read. 
over and over in the sing-song voice of a child's nursery song. At first, he thought the voice must be from some children playing nearby, but when he looked around, there were no children, and he had never heard this child's song before. He sensed the voice was a divine command from heaven to open up the scriptures and read. Monica's son took up the Bible, and his eyes fell on Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The son's heart was miraculously transformed. He would no longer be known as Monica's immoral son. Instead, he would go down in history as St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians and champions of faith in the history of the entire church. I just love the whole story, but I love what the man says to her. It's impossible for the son of those tears to perish. There's something about this kind of praying, laboring in prayer, going beyond just this real quick kneel down on our bed before we, uh, on our bed before we go to sleep and saying, Jesus, would you please do that? Jesus, would you please do that if it's your will? Da, da, da. But getting down on our knees and sitting in a puddle of tears for hours saying, Jesus, we need you to do this because we can't do it. Maybe it's those prayers that Jesus is looking for. Maybe it's not, oh, Jesus, would you please do this? But Jesus, have mercy on us. And then people are like, hey, I think you're getting a little out of hand. And then we say, shut up. Jesus, have mercy on us. Don't tell people to shut up. It's not nice. But you get the point. I assume that there are two groups of people in this room. I think one half of you, and this is just natural because we all tend to lean one way or the other. I think half of you probably really enjoyed the first half of my sermon. And the other half of you really enjoyed the last half of my sermon. There may be some of you who are like, I didn't enjoy any of it. That's fine. Um, And what I mean is, some of us are really okay and really comfortable with the idea of suffering for Jesus and serving others and making ourselves low. And the other, part, other half of us are really into this idea of miracles and healing people and supernatural and God providing and doing all those really amazing stuff. And the reason that we all tend to lean one way or the other is that they seem kind of contradictory. One is, seems like it's about suffering and hardship and the other one's about victory and healing. But let me tell you, you can like one part of the sermon, you can like whichever one, you, you, whichever one was more your favorite, that's fine with me, but please don't grab onto one and throw out the other, because that's where we get in trouble. If we grab on to all of the healing and all of the provision, and we grab on to all of the goodness of God, and we forsake the suffering, and we ignore being a servant, then we've lost the cross. And if we come over here and we just say, oh, it's all about the hard stuff and it's just, you know, we are going to suffer our way to heaven and then one day it's going to be good, we're missing out on all of this good stuff that Jesus is still doing today, the healing and the provision and his goodness that draws people to Jesus in the first place. We have to stand here in the middle with all of the tension and enjoy this beautiful adventure of following Jesus that has high highs and low lows. 
And just be okay with it. Quit trying to maintain a boring, manageable life because Jesus isn't there. Jesus is there in the adventure. He's there in the healing and he's there in the suffering. And we want to follow him into that as a church. I just want to close by saying, um, I think it's so beautiful, the questions that Jesus asked in the sermon. He says, what do you want me to do for you? I think he's still asking the same thing today. And once the sermon is over, communion's going to happen. I don't know if you've seen these couple of people who are always over here uh, during communion. That's our prayer team. And they're here to pray for you. And you, when you walk up there, they're going to ask you, what do you want Jesus to do for you? I encourage you, if you've never gone and there's something you want Jesus to do for you, would you go today? We want to pray for you. We want to expect Jesus to do amazing things for you today.